This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com. Funding for Igeret Hachuva, the Epistle on Repentance, is provided by Isaac, son of Devorah Mindel. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg So he started out in order to understand the higher level of teshuva, to understand a minute glimmer of this. So first he has to make an introduction. So we are on the second chapter from the, uh, the second paragraph from the bottom of the main page. To grasp even a minute glimmer of this, we must preface what scripture and our sages say about what is entailed by excision and death by divine agency. A violator of a sin punishable by excision would actually die before his 50th year. In the case of death by divine agency, he would actually die before 60. So there's actually a, the argument between the Jerusalem Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud. The certain sins in the Torah, the Torah says that your life will be cut off. If a person doesn't circumcise, is uncircumcised, if a person does not eat the Paschal lamb, a certain mitzvot, a certain sins, certain relations, that the Torah says, if you have these relations, you will die. Karis. Karis means you will be cut off. The, uh, then there are certain sins that the Torah says, it's called death in the hands of heaven. Misa Shamay. So there's all different variation, various interpretations, what does cut off mean? What does death in the hands of heaven mean? So the Babylonian Talmud seems to say that there is a um, if a person dies between the ages of 50 and 60, before 60, that's being cut off. If you die after 60, that's hand, death in the hands of heaven. Um, if you live over 80, then you're okay. <laughs> then you're okay. Actually, the rabbis would make a party. When they reach 60, they would make a party. It means that they live to see the age of 60. It means they did not die with the death of being cut off from heaven. So they would make a big party. Now, it doesn't mean that if you go ahead and sin after 60 <laughs> with a sin which he gets, which he gets cut off, you're not going to do that. You don't the punishment is not there. Because it says if you die a certain type of death, depends what kind of death you die, if you die a very quick death, then it's, a, uh, it's also a punishment of karis. But nevertheless, they would make a party because at least 50%, they were, they, they were saved from 50%, half of karis, maybe the other half not. This is according to Babylonian Talmud. Then, then there's Nachmanides. Nachmanides describes the three different levels of karis. There's spiritual where the Torah says you're spiritually cut off, but there's no physical impact. There's another karis, which means that you, not only you die, your children die. You bury your children, which is worse than a personal death. For a parent, it's the worst tragedy. 
children are supposed to bury parents, parents are not supposed to bury children. And so the, he discusses three different levels of karis. But the Jerusalem Talmud states that karis means you will die before you will die, before the age of 50. And if it's the death in the hands of heaven, it's not as severe, you'll die before the age of 60. So this is the version that the Alter Rebbe accepts and the Alter Rebbe is discussing. And he also seems to all that the, 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 the verse means literally you will die. Not spiritually your soul will die, but it means literally that you, you will be cut off. That the person himself, the sinner himself, will die before the age of 50. And the, um, in the case of uh, death in the hands of heaven, the sinner himself will die before the age of 60. And he brings an example. Like the prophet Hachania ben Azur in Arena. As a result of his false prophecy, God told him, I shall banish you from the face of the earth. This resulted in his actual death. So this is a very interesting case we find in the prophets. Jeremiah, starting 40, 40 years before the destruction of the temple, went around telling the people, if you don't repent, the temple is going to be destroyed. It's going to be a tragedy. It's going to be a calamity. Nobody trusted him. Nobody believed him. You know, there are doomsayers now going around telling everyone that America is about to collapse, the dollar is about to collapse. And um, if, uh, if the dollar stops being the primers, primary currency, then our whole standard of living will be downgraded overnight. Um, like America doesn't even know what it has coming to it. Because any empire that was so over in debt, was so over its head in debt, even if every Ameri American worked and every American paid 100% taxes, <laughs> we still would be in debt. That's how much debt we are in. It's so beyond anything that's even imaginable. We, we can't even imagine how deep we are. But as long as, Amer as the dollar bill is the primary currency, we get away with murder. But the moment we stop being the primary cu currency, everything will, inflation will just go through the roof. So there are doomsayers running around, but no one is taking them seriously because, you know, we're used to a certain comfort level, we're certain, used to a certain life. America's number one. So even though America may no longer be number one, but we just can't get used to that idea. The Jewish people, you know, the temple existed for 410 years. They couldn't wrap their mind around the idea that all this is coming to an end, that a proud people are about to lose their king and about to lose their independence and about to be crushed, exiled, destroyed. It's never happened. So they, they were in Israel already for close to 1,000 years. They couldn't, they couldn't relate to it. So Jeremiah was prophesizing 40 years. That's why the name Yirmiyah comes from the word bitterness. He cursed the day that he was born because he had to be the prophet of doom and he had to live to see the fulfillment of his prophecy, the crushing of the Jewish people. Which came as a complete shock. And he wrote the book of Eicha, the Lamentations, which we read on Tishabot, just to describe the complete shock and horror how a proud people was suddenly shackled, murdered, destroyed, exiled, this was unbelievable, such a trauma. So there was, there was a prophet by the name of Hananiah ben Azar. 
At the same time, the Jeremiah went around saying that the Jewish people are going to go into exile. He went around saying, don't worry, go back to sleep. Nothing is going to happen. You'll be okay. And he gave very good prophecies, good news. Calmed everyone down. And Jeremiah turns to Hananiah and he says, you know what the difference between me and you is? He says, if I'm wrong, it doesn't mean I'm a false prophet. Let's say I'm wrong. I prophesied doom. And it never happened. The temple is not destroyed. Everyone, life continues more or less as we know it. I'm not, that doesn't make me a false prophet. Because when a prophet gives a negative prophecy, and the negative prophecy doesn't, doesn't, is not realized, is not fulfilled, that doesn't make him a false prophet. The only reason the prophecy wasn't realized is perhaps the people did the shuva, the people repented. And when they repented, their sin was forgiven and the punishment was removed. We believe that we can change, avert the terrible decree. However, once a prophet prophesies that something positive will happen, he can never go back. And that's how we know if he's a false prophet. And we give the prophet two years to see. A two-year deadline. Is the prophecy going to happen? Isn't it going to happen? Because he said in his prophecy, he said that this is so-and-so is going to happen. This amount of time in two years, you will all get... Okay, so let's see. And when it didn't happen, and two years go by, and if your prophecy is not fulfilled, your good news is not fulfilled, then we'll know you're a false prophet. Now, it's interesting. The Rebbe adds here the words, Hananiah ben Azar, the prophet. And he says, in Jeremiah. Now, there are some opinions that hold that Hananiah ben Azar was actually a false prophet. But the Rebbe says, no, he was a genuine prophet. And because he was a genuine prophet, that's why the people didn't know who to believe. He had two genuine prophets, Jeremiah, who was a proven prophet, and Hananiah ben Azar, who had a history of prophecy, genuine prophecy. So they didn't know who to believe. Who, one of them is lying, but they're not sure who. So they, they couldn't do anything to him. They couldn't punish him. We don't know. Now, what was Hananiah ben Azar's sin? It says if a prophet prophesizes something that was said to another prophet, not to himself, but he goes ahead and prophesizes as if it was said to him, or if he prophesizes something that was never really said as a prophecy, what's the law? The law says that you put him to death. The Jewish court puts him to death. His death is in the hands of the courts, not in the hands of heaven. So why is Al-Tarebi bringing a proof that from Hananiah ben Azar? Hananiah ben Azar did not commit a sin because his sin was not a sin that was in the hands of heaven. This was a sin that was punishable by court. It was a capital sin, a capital crime. For a prophet to prophesize in the name of God, something that God never spoke to him, for that, 
the, it's, a, it's a capital crime, it's a capital punishment. Al-Tarebi is using this as an example that he was guilty of a sin which the punishment is death in the hands of heaven. And you see that he died. The prophet says that he died. That year he died. Within that year he died. This particular sin was not a sin that was punishable by the hands of heaven. This was a sin that was punishable by the hands of the court. So why is he bringing this as an example as a, a sin that's punishable by heaven? And yet the Alter Rebbe felt that the reason he was punished was not because of this sin, which was a sin that was punishable in court, but because he was guilty of a sin that was punishable by heaven. And that explains why he died. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense why he would die. If he was guilty of a sin that was punishable by the courts, then why did he die? Within the year, it says he died. Why not? Why not? The Talmud says that although today we don't have a court, court is not enforced, Jewish courts are not enforced. When a person commits a sin, it's punishable by death. Although the Jewish courts are not in operation, and we cannot practically punish that person with capital punishment, but the, the justice, the punishments of the, of the four deaths, the four types of capital punishments, still exist today. But God takes care of it. And it's, it's an equivalent death. A person who's supposed to be stoned to death will have that type of death. A person who's supposed to be choked, could drown. All different types of deaths are all in the hands of heaven. So even though you may have escaped the punishment in the physical court, for whatever reason, technically the court couldn't, couldn't punish you for whatever reason, you, did, we did, we, you didn't escape because God is, he is the judge. And we don't get away with anything. So therefore, that punishment is still there, but in the hands of heaven. So the question is, why don't you say that really Hanani ben Azar, like a simple interpretation is that he violated the sin that was punishable in the hands of court. For whatever reason, he couldn't be punished. And because of that, he, he died in the hands of heaven. That was a substitute for the, for the, for the court's punishment. Since the court couldn't bring him to justice, so God take, took care of him. What's the proof that when a person sins, a sin, which is punishable in the hands of heaven, they actually die? Hanani ben Azar, this case is not a proof of that. This case is just a proof to the principle that if the court can't deliver the capital punishment, God will deliver the capital punishment. And yet, Alter Rebbe says, you know, this is a proof. A, Hanani ben Azar died because it was a sin between him and heaven. And, and that was the reason he died. Now, it's interesting. Alter Rebbe is going to ask the question here. 
based on this principle that there are people, according to the Torah, if you sin, a sin, where your soul gets cut off, you die early, or if the sin, which the punishment is in the hands of heaven, you die early, how is it that there are so many people who live to a ripe old age, sinners, great sinners, and they live to a ripe old age, and they live happily, happily ever after, very happy lives. They don't suffer, they're not in pain. They live very happily, and they live to the 80s and the 90s. There are Nazis that are still alive, and living very happily, in good health, successful. Murdered a thousand times over, a million times over, and yet nothing happened to them. So how is it? Pa- so that's the Alter Rebbe's question. Now the question is, what's what, why is this such a great question? Toysavus asks the question when the Talmud says that although capital punishment has been abolished because we don't have courts today, Jewish courts are not in functional, not in operation. We don't have the power to give capital punishments. But the justice of the, of the punishments are not gone. The punishments are still there, but in the hands of heaven. God now delivers the punishment. God is the judge, the jury, and the, and the one who delivers the punishment. So Taish was asked there, what do you mean? We see many people who sin, who do commit sins, sins that the punishment is capital punishment in the hands of the court, and they live a long life. And nothing happens to them. They live happily ever after. No pain, no discomfort, no inconvenience, no poverty, nothing. They're very comfortable. <laughs> Why? If the Talmud says that although the courts are not functioning, but the, the just, justice, is still, justice still prevails because God is running this world and ultimately you get your just desserts. You can fool the whole world, but you can't fool God. So how is it that so many people live happy lives who have committed and violated every sin in the book? And he says, you know why? Because they did the shuvah. They repented. They repented. Maybe they repented. Because they repented, their sins are forgiven. That's the difference between the court and when it's in the hands of God and when it's in the hands of the court. A judge could only judge by action. A judge can't judge. We don't know what's going on in your heart. We don't know what's going on in your mind. So tshuva is not effective. Even if you cry and you repent, the judge, you committed the crime, we have to sentence you. We have to punish you. What's going on inside of your heart, maybe you repented, maybe you're, you're totally born again, maybe you've totally transformed, maybe, but I can't judge these things. We can only judge by what the eye sees. So once the judgment is delivered to human beings in the hands of the court, there's no going back. No matter what you feel inside, no matter how much regret you feel, they have to carry out the sentence to the bitter end. But once the justice is delivered to the Hashem, the hands of God, God knows what's going on inside of your heart. So if you have a genuine teshuvah, and if you have a genuine change of heart, then God looks into the heart, into the heart and Based on that teshuvah, he will change your outcome. And there, the Alter Rebbe doesn't ask a question. How is it possible that people can live to a ripe old age? 
He only asks on those sins which the punishment is initially in the hands of heaven. Where the punishment is your soul will get cut off. Or the punishment is your, soul, your death in the hands of heaven. There the Alter Rebbe asks with astonishment, how is it possible that people commit these sins and yet they live happily lives past 50, past 60 and they go on and on and on. Why doesn't he ask this question? The same question you can ask on those who commit sins where the punishment is death in the hands of the courts. It's a capital crime, a capital punishment. Although we don't have courts today, but God is the judge. We don't get away with murder. So how is it that these people live long lives? The Alter Rebbe doesn't ask any question. Why? What's the difference with him? Also, why does the Alter Rebbe ask the question, how is it possible that people can live such long lives although they've sinned? The Talmud states clearly that since these punishments, the punishment of your soul being cut off, or the punishment in the hands of heaven. Since these punishments are in the hands of heaven, so the Talmud states clearly, teshuva helps, repentance helps. So why does Alter Rebbe ask the question? You know why people live long? Maybe they repent. And repentance can be in a moment, in an instant. So maybe they repented, and therefore they got a new lease on life. The same answer that Teisvah gives why people who commit capital crime continue to live a long life because they repented. The same answer as the Talmud says by sins that are in the hands of heaven, the punishment is in the hands of heaven, death in the hands of heaven, or your soul is cut off. The Talmud states clearly that if you repent, then all your sins are forgiven. That's fine. So, the Rebbe explains, of course, the Alter Rebbe knows what the Talmud says, but that alone is trying to understand. Why is it? How is it? Why is it so difficult to understand? So the Rebbe explains that we know there's a, there's a discussion. The whole idea of punishments. Is punishment a natural consequence? The punishments in the Torah, they are natural consequences. Or the punishment is not a natural consequence. If you do this, then you're going to receive these and these punishments. If you stick your hand in the socket and you get electrocuted, was that a punishment? That's a consequence. You can call it a punishment. Yeah, punishment for putting your hand in the socket. You're going to get electrocuted. But it's, it's a consequence. Versus, if you do something, then something from the outside, then a punishment comes, arrives from the outside. But it's not, there's not direct link, a direct connection between your action and the consequence. So the Rebbe says that's the difference between the sins in which the punishment is in the hands of the court, or the sins which the punishment is, your soul will get cut off. The punishment which is in the hands of the court... That means that the punishment is not directly linked and connected to your actions. It's not that automatically, if you do this, you bring about this punishment. Because it's in the hands of the courts. You have to have witnesses, and you have to have interrogation, and you have to 
and the court carries out the punishment. So it means that there's not a direct link between your actions and the consequences. Versus that your soul is cut off or death in the hands of heaven, it's like a direct consequence. It's like you've stuck your hand in the socket. So automatically your soul gets cut off. You do a, such a sin, such a severe sin that cuts off, cuts off your oxygen supply, cuts off your spiritual connection. As a result, you can't live. Or a, a lesser sin where the punishment is in the hands of heaven. That's more like a consequence. Where does it make more sense that truva can help? A sin in which the punishment is not a direct consequence or a sin in which the punishment is a direct consequence? What do you think? Where does it make more sense to say that repentance helps? Indirect. If it's a direct, I stuck my hand in, in, the, in the socket, so I'm doing teshuva. A lot is going to help me. I stuck my hand in the socket. It, 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 it's, it's a consequence. It's a natural consequence. I can't help it. It's not like a punishment. It's more like a consequence. You did a certain action. You, you took a scissor and you, and you chopped off your neck. You're going to die. You chopped off your neck. You severed your connection. You cut your soul off from its source. So that, that's more of a consequence. How can truva help? How can the Talmud say truva can help? How can repentance help? If it's a natural consequence. That's what he says. If a person sins, how is it possible that people can live such good lives and long lives past 60, and even though they're sinners, and even though and they live very sweet lives and happy lives, and they haven't repented. And even if they have repented, how can, how can repentance help? It's a consequence. I cut myself off. I chopped off my, he chopped off his head. He chopped off his head. Doesn't, well, nothing you can do it's a consequence you lost your head so your life comes to an end but if it's a type of sin which has capital capital crime capital punishment in the hands of the court there is an indirect link it's not such a direct connection if you do this automatically it doesn't happen automatically you have to go to court there's a whole procedure there's a whole process so there it makes more sense to say that shuva helps that repentance helps. Because there's not, there's not such a direct link, such a direct uh, connection. Now getting back to the case of Hananiah ben Azar. Hananiah the son of Azar. Hananiah ben Azar. The court could not punish him immediately. Why? They have to wait two years. He said, in two years, this is going to happen. So they have to wait two years to see if the prophecy will be fulfilled or not. So since the court couldn't punish him, therefore, the heavenly punishment, the equivalent punishment, God couldn't either punish him until, until the court's punishment applies only then could the divine punishment apply. Since the, the, court, the punishment of the court could not apply up until two years. Even if technically, even after two years, maybe, there, maybe there's, there's not, he wasn't warned, he didn't have kosher witnesses, whatever. For whatever technical reasons. 
the courts the courts were too intimidated to prosecute him, whatever it is. Then it kicks in. God says, listen, the court is not functioning. For whatever reason, the court is not functioning. I'll take care of it. Don't worry. He's not getting away with anything. I'm running this world and no one gets away with anything. I'll take care of it. He's not, he's not escaping me. But when does that kick in? When the court should have punished him. And when the court, for whatever reason, because the court system was not functioning, because the court was corrupt, and it wasn't functioning properly, and they couldn't punish him, then God's punishment would kick in. So if that would be the case, he shouldn't have died till two years later. When did he die? It says in Jeremiah, that year. Within that year. Why would he die that year? So obviously it's not for the sin of saying a prophecy that God said to someone else, to another prophet, because that's a capital crime. And that crime doesn't kick in until two years. And if, even if the court was corrupt and couldn't punish him, when his prophecy wouldn't come true after two years, and then God would, 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 uh, God's punishment would kick in, but that would be two years later. Why did he die that same year? So the only reason he died that same year is because he must have been guilty of another sin. He must have been guilty of a sin which is the punishment is in the hands of heaven which is that you die before the age of 60 and that's why he died that year the question is why did he die immediately he could have died when he turned 60 right before he turned 60 why was the punishment immediately we said the punishment of Death in, the, death in the hands of heaven is you don't live to see past your 60th birthday. According to the Jerusalem Talmud. So why did he die instantly? He could have died, could have waited till, till his 60th birthday. He could have died the day before his 60th birthday. So that's why he says... Indeed, there have been instances in which the punishment of death by divine agency was also meted out instantly as with error and omen. This involved the sin incurring death by divine agency. So we find Eir and Oynan, like we call Oynanism, that they died instantly, the moment they wasteful emission. Well, in this case, they had relations with their wives, but then they withdrew and it was a wasteful emission. In that case, you see, they died instantly. Even though the punishment is in the hands of death, the punishment is till the age of 60, and they were much younger, and yet they died instantly. So there are cases where you commit a sin, which the sin is in the hands of heaven, and yet God doesn't wait till the age of 60. Or if it's a sin which the punishment is, your soul will be cut off, and God doesn't wait till the last moment, till 50. But you can die instantly. It depends on the person, it depends on the sin, it depends, I guess, how connected you are and how much your sin affects that connection. But that's a possibility. So Hananiah ben Azar also died pretty much instantly that year. Hashem didn't even wait till he turned 60, till right before he turned 60. Continue in any event. In any event, both scripture and the sages attest that those guilty of sins punishable by excision or death by divine agency 
would actually die before they reached the age of 50 or 60. This leads to the following question. But in every generation, there are so many individuals liable to excision and death who nevertheless enjoy extended and pleasant days and years. He's adding pleasant. Because you may want to say, you know, maybe they live, but they lived a torturous life. They lived a horrible life. It says a poor person is compared to, to death. You know, the, the, the pain of poverty is compared to death. Maybe they have to be in exile to certain things, certain human experiences that, they, that are the equivalent of death. So maybe you can say they didn't die literally, but they died many times over. In, in a metaphorical sense, they died. You know, an emotional sense, psychological sense, spiritual sense, they died. So he says, no, they lived very comfortably, and very wealthy and very comfortably, and without a, a worry, a care, a worry, a concern in the world. So that makes no sense if the Torah says that if you do a certain sin, you will be punished. And it's a natural consequence. So how can you say that they live, and even if you can say they do teshuva, how can teshuva help? It's a natural consequence. You put your hand in the socket and you get electrocuted. So what can teshuva do? So if you do a certain sin, you cut yourself off. The word karis means to cut. You cut yourself off. You cut off your life source. You cut off your oxygen tube. You're in the mine shaft and you cut off your oxygen supply. How can, how can, you only have enough to survive until only a few days and then you, you, you've cut off you know in this world we're like in the shaft, the mine shaft deep in Tifendarel deep, deep down <laughs> deep down <laughs> but we have, in order to keep alive we have to have a, a connection oxygen and what happens if you do an action with your own hands you cut off your oxygen supply and then you're only left with a few hours, days, minutes, days, and that's it. You cut off your life supply. It's a consequence. What does Truva, how can Truva help? What can I do? And we find in the olden days exactly what happened. In the biblical times, they died. They did such a sin, and that was it. They physically died. Because their oxygen supply was gone. They cut off their, their supply, their, their life support, their life so why is it today we don't find that? Today people sin with equanimity, people get away with murder, people do the worst sins, and it doesn't affect them whatsoever. They live happily ever after. How do we explain this? And this is what he's going to explain. This is the introduction. He says, in order to understand the two levels of teshuva that the Zohar talks about, the higher level of teshuva and the lower level of teshuva, in order to get even a glimmer of this, first, we have to understand and reconcile. How do we reconcile what the Talmud, what the rabbis, the oral Torah, and the Bible, the written Torah, describe how certain sins, your life gets cut off. And yet we find today... It doesn't appear to be so. It appears that people who sin and they live happily ever after. How do you explain that? So now the Alter Rebbe is going to start explaining. And with this explanation, by the time we're done with this explanation, we'll have a glimmer at least, at least a little understanding 
of the lower level of teshuva and the higher level of teshuva. Okay, any questions before we go on? Well, this was a little complicated piece. <laughs> Very. Uh, he's saying here, uh, nevertheless, they enjoy extended and pleasant days. Well, uh, you know, it's not a given that they've done teshuva. You know, you can't say that, oh, well, they've had an extended pleasant day, you know. I mean, there's a lot of... Uh, People we know. Yes, yeah. that's exactly right. Plenty of that, uh, well, you know, uh, you're probably right. Ripe old age, and they haven't done shiva. You're probably right, but even if you give them the benefit of the doubt, maybe they had a moment. Maybe they had a moment. Everyone has a moment. Right. Everyone has a genuine moment where something cracks through the shell. A genuine moment, a moment of regret, a moment of clarity, and maybe it only lasted for a moment. But that moment you did shiva, maybe you were forgiven. And then he went on to sin again. <laughs> but this doesn't explain, uh, you know, what Moses was uh, perplexed about and what King David says. How come uh, the wicked prosper? And uh, in other words, you know, <laughs> you could say they had a moment of tshuva, but maybe they didn't have a moment of tshuva. Right. So that's a, that's a classical question, Job's question, and Moses and King David. Why is it that the... It seems like it's very basic to the whole thing. Evil people prosper and, um, and uh, righteous people suffer. That's the ultimate question. But here he's talking about very specifically when a person commits a sin, which the Torah says that if you commit the sin, the punishment is excision. You cut off. You cut off your soul. And like the analogy, you're, 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 you're a miner, you're a thousand feet under the ground, and you're living off your connection, your, your oxygen, and you went with your own hands, and you cut off the oxygen supply. You had a temptation, you're an American, you have rights, you live as you please, and you went ahead and cut off the oxygen. And now you cut off, you cut off from up there, you're stranded, you're stuck down here, and you only have enough oxygen to last you till the age of 50, till the age of 60. And then that's it. It runs out. Even if you did trivia, I'm nothing I can do to help you. I'm sorry. <laughs> you, you, you put your hand in the socket. It's a consequence, not a punishment. It's a consequence. This is what you did. This is what you caused. And the Torah says this is a natural consequence. And you don't need any court deliberations. You don't need any special, special dispensations. This is a natural consequence. And we have examples. Air and Onan, Onanism. We have the example of Han- Hananiah ben Azar, the prophet, before the destruction of the first temple. So we have, that's exactly what happened to them. They physically died because of that sin. So what changed? Why today that doesn't operate anymore? That's not, it's an opera. We can do these specific sins that come with these specific punishments, consequences, and yet it has no effect on us, it has no impact continue to live happily ever after. What changed? What happened? That's what he's coming to explain. Like, like uh, these guys that talk who we know. <laughs> uh, you know uh, in other words, back in the old days, uh, there would have been a consequence for their uh, you know, immoral behavior. They would have... Uh, the only thing we well, well, that's, that, that's death in the hands of court. That's different. Death yeah, in the hands right. of court. Oh, 
if the court is corrupt or for whatever technical reason no, they God weren't. God is recognized. Then God is recognized. No, but that we understand that Shuvah helps because that's not a direct consequence. That's more, anything that's in the hands of the court means it's not a direct consequence. Why do you have to take him to court? If he puts his hands in the socket, you have to take him to court. <laughs> you put his hands in the socket, he's going to get electrocuted. Those sins where the Torah says your punishment is your soul is cut off. You're going to die in the hands of heaven. There's no, you, there's no reason to take him to court. You've done an act and the consequences come immediately. The punishment is more like a consequence. Those sins, like the example you're bringing, where the Torah says you have to take someone to court, adultery, other sins, that means it's not a direct consequence. It's not a directly related that if you do this, all of a sudden you're going to get stoned, you're going to get this, you're going to get that. Not a direct consequence. You know, if you don't keep Shabbos, God forbid, you get stoned, that's not a direct consequence. That's like indirect. So the three cardinal sins are not direct? No, the punishment is not cutters. Punishment is capital crime. It's all capital crime. It's punishable by court, in the hands of the court. So that's not an automatic. He's talking very specific. Dr. Rebbe is very specific here. He's talking about specifically only those sins which are not in the hands of the court. Because those sins are in the hands of the court, so it's not direct. And therefore, even though the Talmud says that although the courts are not functioning today, but justice still functions... If the Torah says you're going to die by the four different types of capital punishments, either strangulation, stoning, um, um, hanging, or through fire, means they pour lead, lead, hot lead down your throat. All of these four things, if you don't die, Hashem, the justice will catch you. You'll die the equivalent of it, something close to it. What are those sins? No. <laughs> Stoning. No, no, I understand the punishment. Right. What are the sins? Uh, desecrating Shabbos. Oh, there are many, many sins. There are many so sins that are capital crime. No. Adultery, Shabbos, a capital punishment, murder, idolatry. There are many sins. If, if, if you're a prophet, a prophet who, who, a false prophet who says things in the name of God that he never said, or something God said to another prophet, and he said there are many, many crimes that are capital punishment. That Alter Rebbe is not discussing. Because although justice still prevails, but we understand that since it's basically essentially given to the hands of the court, therefore it's not an automatic consequence. If you do the sin, automatically you're going to die. No, it's not automatically. You have to go to court. There's a whole procedure. See, even when God carries out the justice, it's not automatic. Therefore, you can understand how truva can help. You can sever the link between your actions and the consequences. But in those specific cases where the Torah says, you don't take it to court. It's automatic. You sin and your soul is cut off. Or you, ha- you die in the hands of heaven. That, in such a case, it's nothing to do with the court. It's a consequence, not a punishment. It's a consequence. You, you, you put your hand in the socket and you electrocute yourself. You cut off your oxygen supply and that's it. You're only going to live till 50 or 60. So, these, in these cases... That's what Al-Turabi is asking. In these cases, how can Shuvah help? What happened today? Why don't we find that all of this is operative today? Many people lead long lives, healthy lives, even though they violated these sins, which come with these punishments. And it doesn't affect them. Yeah, but 
human beings cannot know what is in the heart of these people. Only, only God knows what's in the heart of these people. But the question is, even if in his heart he did the shuva, how can it help? If I put my hand in an electrical socket, shuva is not going to help me. If you walk in front of a car, if you cross the street on a red light, but I'm doing shuva in my heart, I, I, yeah, you're walking in front of a bus, in front of a, a bus is going 90 miles an hour, it's not going to help you. What? Right, so in that case, consciousness won't help because you've done an act. Torah says it's, it's a direct consequence. But maybe you, Shuba overrides everything. Maybe a merciful God, maybe? Well, we learned it earlier. You can ask the question we learned it earlier. If you remember the, what we learned in the first chapter. If a person sins, right? The four levels of Teshuvah. There's three different categories of Teshuvah, and he quotes the Talmud. If a person sins a sin of omission, you repent and you're instantly forgiven. A sin of commission, you have to repent and you need Yom Kippur to forgive. <coughs> a sin, a strict, a severe sin. What's a severe sin? A sin that comes with a capital crime, a capital punishment. Or a sin <coughs> where the punishment is your soul is cut off or death in the hands of heaven. In that case, Teshuva, together with Yom Kippur, together with pain and suffering, wipes off your sin. So we see clearly that Teshuva helps. You don't have to go far. We just learned it. So what's he asking a question? How is it that these people, well, they had a Yom Kippur. And they did Teshuva. And maybe Teshuva helps. But that alone is the question. What? Well, maybe, maybe, you know, the Talmud says that if a person does the shuva, it doesn't say the punishment is, uh, if the person does shuva, um, maybe there's a, you can do such a level of teshuva that, you know, God could defer the suffering. Um, or maybe, maybe you don't need suffering. It's not so clear-cut in every case you have suffering. For example, it says if a person keeps Shabbos properly, studies the laws of Shabbos, and masters the laws of Shabbos, all the details of Shabbos, and all your sins are forgiven. Even a person who sinned the sin where his soul is cut off and the capital crime, and really you would need Teshuvah together with Yom Kippur, together with pain and suffering, but you can substitute the pain and suffering by keeping Shabbos properly. And then Teshuvah alone is enough. You do Teshuvah and you keep Shabbos properly, everything is forgiven. For any sin? Even for the worst sins. Even for the sin of where the punishment is death. You, you, just by keeping, that's how powerful keeping Shabbos properly is. So you see, not in every case you really have to go through all three. Sometimes you can keep Shabbos and it's the equivalent of, so without the pain and suffering. So maybe a person did the shuvah, a very powerful shuvah, 
and and therefore it alleviates his his uh, alleviates his death. Also, the Talmud says that since it's in the hands of heaven, Shuvah can help. Don't forget, we discussed earlier in chapter one, if you remember, there's two parts to Teshuvah, to repentance. Two different parts. There's one part is the essence of Teshuvah is the moment you have a change of heart. The moment you make a resolution, you're going to change, going forward. At that moment, you have done Teshuvah. You've completely shifted internally, you've shifted internally, and you've returned back and turned your face to Hashem and reconnected with Hashem. You're back. Before you went a while, and now you're back. You re-enlisted. You're back. Then there's another aspect. You messed up. You created damage. You created a scar. Now you have to clean the scar. To clean the scar, that, for that, you need shuva, Yom Kippur, as well as pain and suffering. Clean up the scar that you've created, even if you continue to live. Your truva is good. The moment you have a change of heart, your truva is complete. And that alone could alleviate your death sentence. That alone. You did truva. But you still have to clean up your mess. You created the scar by doing a sin, such a strict sin, such a severe sin. You damaged yourself, you damaged the universe. You have to make up for that. Clean the mess. You need an intense truva. You need Yom Kippur. You need pain and suffering. But two, two different things. It doesn't mean I need the pain and suffering to alleviate my, my, my sentence, my death sentence. could be the moment you do truva, you've already alleviated your death sentence. I need the pain and suffering to cleanse, to completely cleanse and to heal and to completely be forgiven for what I've done. But even truva itself, I'm, it could be I'm, I'm already forgiven. And the truva is accepted. So it's two different things. But the question that the Rebbe is asking here is, why, why is truva so effective? If it's a consequence, how can truva help? I put my hand in the socket. So you should get electrocuted. What do you mean? I did truva. <laughs> what do you mean, truva? If the Torah says you cut off your life, you cut off your soul, you chopped off your head, spiritually speaking, you cut off your oxygen supply, and therefore there's no way you can live past 50 or 60. And in many cases, we find you don't even have to wait till 50 or 60. They died right away because, because they cut off their soul. They were cut off. So how can Shiva help? Because at that moment you connect with God. At that precise moment when you have the consciousness of doing Shiva. Yeah, but, but, if, but if, if you've cut yourself... I'm connecting... No, no, but if you've cut yourself off, you know, we're very materialistic today, so it's easy to discuss more materialistic terms. You know, people were very sympathetic with Dr. Kevorkian, you know, the angel of death. <laughs> Got it, right? Uh, why were they so sympathetic with him? He was a murderer. Because, and he looked like the angel of death. Because, they say, you have to be sympathetic. The person is in pain. So he wasn't murdering people, he was relieving them of their pain. 
So spiritually, when a person is spiritually sensitive and you commit such a sin, such a severe sin, such a massive sin, that you can't live with yourself. You'll eat yourself up inside. You can't make peace with yourself. When you do such a sin where you cut yourself off, it's almost, it's almost like a mercy death. It's, not, it's like you're alleviating the person of his pain. Which explains why when the Jewish people sinned, the sin of the spies, God wanted to wipe them out in the desert. God is merciful. Why did he want to wipe them out in the desert? And Moshe didn't even pray for them. Did not pray for them. By the sin of the golden calf, Moshe gave God an ultimatum. Here he didn't even pray for them. Okay. They deserve to die. Yeah, 100%. The Moshe's argument was, it's not good, it's not good PR. What are the Goyim going to say? It looks very bad. He took them out of Egypt and then they all died in the desert. It's not, it's not, it's not good for business. <laughs> that was his only argument. God says, you know, you have a point, okay, so, you know, they're going to die out slowly. The whole generation will die, but slowly. On the 60th birthday, they all died out. All the men on the 60th birthday, that was death in the hands of heaven. And the 60th birthday, they all died out. This is a classical example, death in the hands of heaven. They didn't reach, they didn't pass the 60th birthday. Why didn't Moshe pray for them? Moshe is their shepherd. Moshe is so devoted to them. Moshe gave up his life for them. All of a sudden here, it's like, okay, you want to kill them? Okay, no problem. But this doesn't look too good. The answer is, Moshe realized how tortured they were that the Jewish soul was so tortured that, you know, they couldn't handle it. Life was too much of a trouble for them. Life was too much of a challenge for them. They didn't want to go into Israel and uh, kvetching and complaining. And, you know what? You're alleviating them of their pain. They can't handle it. They can't deal with it. It's almost a merciful thing to do. It's not a punishment. It's a consequence. It's not for you. You can't handle this. You can't deal with it. You can't. You can't. God doesn't give a test to a person who can't handle it. This is not for you. So it's the kind thing to you. It's the merciful thing for you, for you to die out because you can't handle the challenge of going into Israel and dealing with the Canaanites. It's very rough. It's very harsh. It's very... You're just not up to it. So you're so tortured. It's almost a merciful death. So all the punishments in the Torah are really merciful. They're not, they're not, it's not vengeance. It's not vengeful. All the punishments in the Torah are merciful. They're merciful to the soul. So when a person is so in touch with his soul, when you do such a grievous sin, such a great sin, that the Torah says your soul is cut off, or death in the hands of heaven, you can't live with yourself. You can't, the merciful thing to do, to relieve the soul, because death is part of the atonement. When the soul... When the person dies, the ego comes to an end and the soul is relieved. That's part when you... The punishments in the Torah are actually atonements for the soul. So it, it, this, is, this is a relief for the soul. This is for the benefit of the soul. So when a person is soulful and a person is in touch with his soul, when you commit such a sin, you just can't live with yourself anymore. And therefore it's the merciful thing to do. Just, just for your soul to be relieved of this burden and for your soul to be cleansed through, through death. So, it's a consequence. It's not a punishment. And if it's a consequence, not a punishment, so how can Shuvah help? That's the question Alter Rebbe is asking. 
Even if they did shuvah, how can it help? And we see in the Torah it didn't help. People died like that. Maybe they also did shuvah, but it didn't help. <laughs> you, you'd committed such a sin. Shuvah doesn't help. So why all of a sudden today does it help? Especially if you take into account that we know some of these people. <laughs> it's very questionable if they did shuvah. Very far from it. And yet they still live happy lives. But that's besides the point. Even the question is really, we don't know what's going on. You're right, we don't know what's going on in the person's heart. Maybe they did shuvah. Shuvah can happen in a moment. Everyone has a moment of clarity. Everyone has a moment of truth. We never know. Behind closed doors, at night, you never know. Never judge a book by its cover. Never judge. But even if they did shuvah, the question is, how does it help? Of course we learn in chapter 1 that shuvah helps. And you could be forgiven, you can even be cleansed. But the question is, how can Shuvah help? That's the question. For this type of sin, he's not asking on the other sins. Capital punishment, we understand how Shuvah helps. Because the, the punishment is not a direct consequence of the, of the actions. It's two separate parts, two separate components. So you can have a sin and then you can have the punishment. So therefore, you can understand how you can sever the connection. There is no strong connection. So even though it's in the hands of heaven now, today there is no court, so it's in the hands of heaven. But it's not the same as a sin where the punishment initially is your soul will be cut off or you will die in the hands of heaven. There, what the Torah is telling us is you don't have to take it to court. There's a direct consequence. So there the question is, how can Shuvah help? But in the case of, of with the punishment is capital punishment, capital crime, capital punishment, there, it's not so clear. It's not so direct. So therefore, over there it makes sense that Shuvah should help. And that's what we learn in chapter 1. The person sinned a severe sin. What's a severe sin? A sin that comes with a capital punishment. Here, tshuva helps, and Yom Kippur helps, and pain and suffering helps, even to cleanse the sin. But the truth is, to relieve yourself of the judgment of heaven, let's say there is no courts today, or let's say the courts were corrupt and they weren't functioning. Today there is, there is no functioning courts. And therefore, the, the measure for measure, the judgments, the punishment still exists. God delivers the punishment today. But the moment you do teshuva, even before maybe Yom Kippur and pain and suffering, the moment you do teshuva, you're forgiven. You're not going to die. In order to achieve a complete cleansing, that you need teshuva, together with Yom Kippur, and together with pain and suffering. And if it's a sin, only if it's a sin, where you desecrated God's name, then the only atonement, is death. But it doesn't mean you're going to die right away because then tshuva itself, tshuva helps for everything. Tshuva, the moment you do tshuva, you're forgiven. The essence of tshuva is you change. You're a new person, you're a different person. But in order to cleanse the mess that you've made, the scar that you've made, for, for a sin of desecrating God's name in public, for that, tshuva is not alone enough Kippur is not enough, even pain and suffering. The only thing that can achieve an ultimate cleansing is only when the person, when the ego comes to an end, when the body dies. That's when the soul is cleansed and the soul is completely atoned for. Even the worst sin, the sin of desecrating God's name. So it's, it's two different things. You know, we're talking about two different things. And this is the question that the Rebbe is asking. Any other questions? Well, I, next, this piece already starts a whole new piece, so we'll, we'll start it next week. So, anyone else? Yeah. I'm curious. Moshe, on his level, he couldn't do tshuva for hitting the rock? He, he was... 
I mean, it was pronounced on him immediately that when he hit the rock that nothing he could do could have changed that. You know, there are many reasons why Moshe did not go into the land of Israel. Ultimately, had Moshe entered into the land of Israel, that would have been Mashiach. And, you know, that's the significance of Moshe entering the land of Israel. Moshe is still stuck in the desert. The Rebbe never entered into the land of Israel. None of the Rebbe's, except the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, was the only one who briefly visited Israel. The only one. Not the Baal Shem, the, not the Magid, not the Alter Rebbe, not the Mittler Rebbe, not the Tzemot Tzedek, not the Rebbe Marash, not the Rebbe Rashad. Although they all wanted to, many of them even actually started going and planned to go, and it just never happened. Because if Moshe enters the land of Israel, what do you mean Moshe enters the land of Israel? Who is Moshe? Moshe embodies the Jewish people. When Moshe enters the land of Israel, that's the ingathering of the exiles. Every Hasidic child knows that if the Baal Shem Tov would have gone into Israel, Mashiach would have come, because that's the ingathering of the exiles. You know, the Rebbe would always say, I'm going to come to Israel together with Mashiach. Mashiach hasn't come yet, so the Rebbe never went to Israel. He's still stuck in the desert, stuck in Queens. We're all stuck in the desert, we're all stuck in exile. Because that's, that's the meaning of Moshe coming into Israel. When Moshe comes to Israel, it means the Jewish people have arrived, and we haven't. Mashiach hasn't come yet. So there are many reasons why Hashem did not allow, ultimately, Moshe to come into Israel. It had nothing to do with you, but that's a direct consequence, so to speak. I mean, you can use that same situation. I don't know. It's not a, it wasn't punishment by death. Every case is different. There, Moshe prayed so hard. Prayed 515 prayers. Hashem had to tell him to stop. <laughs> and the Rebbe says he's doubtful if Moshe even listened. Because <laughs> as everything the owner tells you to do, except when he tells you to leave. <laughs> So he's telling him to leave. Moshe maybe didn't even listen, but yeah, they didn't help him. Hashem didn't want it, and it didn't happen. Um, so it's different. You know, Hashem had his reasons. The Rebbe prayed so hard, and Mashiach should come before he passed away. Hashem didn't listen. Hashem had his reasons. We don't understand Hashem. Hashem is beyond all of us. <laughs> you know, we can't fathom Hashem. We don't understand Him. We don't understand His ways. We don't even begin to understand the Rebbe said many times, I don't understand. He said many times, I have no clue why Mashiach still hasn't come yet. I, I, I simply, I'm stumped. I have no idea. It makes no sense. After all this tremendous effort of the Jewish people, all this 5,000 5, Chabad houses all over the world, Yiddishkeit flourishing, hundreds of thousands of Balchuvas, you know, all the Torah and mitzvah and all the heroic sac sacrifice of the Jewish people over 3,800 years, surviving holocausts and pogroms, and yet we still have faith and we still believe in Mashiach and talk about Mashiach and think about Mashiach and think about godliness and still learning the Tanya and publicizing the Tanya and the teachings of Hasidus. And despite everything, it hasn't budged. Mashiach hasn't come. So, the Rebbe says, I don't understand. That was one of the last things the Rebbe said. He kept on repeating it. He said, I don't understand. With all the Rebbe's massive understanding of Torah, he says, I don't understand. I have no clue. It makes absolutely no sense. At this late date in Jewish history, we're still sitting in exile. 
who, who would have believed in the year 5,772 that we would still be sitting in exile? Does it make sense? It makes absolutely no sense. There's no way to explain it, no way to rationalize it. Um, all the rabbis who gave deadlines when Mashiach must come, we've already passed all the deadlines because no rabbi in his wildest nightmare could have envisioned that at this late date in the Jewish calendar we would still be sitting in exile. So, you know, we don't understand the ways of Hashem. Moshe prayed and Hashem said, no, not yet. But one moment, there'll be a moment and Hashem will say yes. <laughs> finally, 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 he'll say yes. Now, now, let's go. And there'll be a moment. Just like the Exodus from Egypt was a moment, a split second. And the clock struck midnight. One split second. The world changed forever. The Jewish people changed forever. Egypt changed forever. So one moment, that's what we're waiting for, that one moment. That moment hasn't happened yet. No one to lose himself for a moment that that moment doesn't happen. If anyone needs any proof, just look in the mirror. <laughs> we still have very healthy egos. We have very healthy Yetzirahs. And uh, just read the headlines. We live in a very false world. And uh, so... You don't need any proof. Look at the anti-Semitism. Look how Israel is treated. So that moment hasn't happened yet. Look at all the pain and suffering. So no one could even delude himself. That moment has happened. And if anyone does delude himself, <laughs> he belongs in a mental institution. You know, if anyone could confuse darkness for light and call this redemption, it's pretty sad. You know, so much pain and so much suffering and so much darkness so much concealment and so much challenge. It's almost, we're on the threshold, any moment, any second, absolutely. But until it happens, it hasn't happened. And that's the mystery, that's the million dollar question. Why hasn't it happened yet? But we're confident that it's going to happen any moment. We're trying to get ready for that moment. And we won't rest until that moment happens because we can't settle for anything less. Moshe is still stuck in the desert. All the Rebbe's are still stuck in Queens, in Russia, <laughs> in Mabavich, in Hadith, in Yezhin, in Rastov. Moshe hasn't, hasn't arrived. The Jewish people haven't yet arrived in Israel. Most Jews live outside of Israel. And Jews in Israel are in exile. In a deeper, darker exile. Just, just the other day, they destroyed homes. Arabs are building like crazy, missiles are flying, they released thousands of terrorists, destroyed Batayin, destroyed a beautiful community within the borders. Everyone agrees in the borders of Israel with a viciousness and an evil, went and destroyed homes. Bride and grooms just got married, built their homes with their hands for six months with a viciousness. They went and destroyed it. This is, this is what we waited for. This is the deepest, darkest exile. All the Arabs next door are building without it. No one is stopping them. So you wonder, is the Israeli army there to protect the Jewish people or are they there to fight the Jewish people? This is what you use soldiers for? To fight Jews? To destroy Jewish homes? In Israel? When the prime minister has a de facto freeze, doesn't allow Jews to build? Oh no, it's, he is now. Yeah, yeah, very. Uh, practically speaking, there's a freeze. You hear once in a while he throws a bone here, a bone there. But it's comparison to the need, it's, 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 it's a sad, sad 
commentary, speak to the people on the ground, practically speaking, there's a total freeze. Officially, it's lifted the freeze, but that practically there is no lift of freeze. Yeah, we have, he throws a bone here, a little thing here, a little thing there, but that's not. So. Right. Well, it, it's a far cry of the way things should be. And, uh, you know, let's not confuse exile with redemption. Let's not confuse darkness with light. Let's not confuse... Mashiach hasn't come yet. <laughs> you know, he hasn't come yet. And the redemption hasn't materialized yet. And that's the only thing that matters, that the redemption should materialize. When the redemption will materialize, Moshe will be there with us. Moshe will arrive into the Promised Land. The Rebbe will arrive in the Promised Land. We'll all arrive in the Promised Land. And all 70,000 Jews of the Upper East Side will also move to the Promised Land. And the West Side. The West Side. We're just sitting, we're just sitting, here, in, we're just sitting here in the East Side. But uh, you're right. I'm saying even Jews. He says it didn't, it didn't take a Messiah to get Jews out of blood-drenched Europe. But it will take a Mashiach to get Jews out of Park Avenue. <laughs> that hasn't happened yet. So Hashem has his calculations. We don't understand Hashem. We, don't, we can't begin to fathom Hashem's mind, where Hashem thinks, what Hashem is thinking. All we know is that we're yelling and screaming, we're shouting, we're praying, we're begging, we're relentlessly, we need Mashiach now. We need the redemption to materialize now. All the Yiddish Tzadahs happen literally. We need Mashiach also literally. We're not going to settle for spiritual or the worldly metaphorical Mashiach. You know, if the, if the Yiddish Tzadahs were metaphorical and spiritual and otherworldly, okay, then we can live with the Mashiach. But unfortunately, the Yiddish Tzadahs are real. We can't see the Rebbe without full of eyes that's real. So we're not going to settle for Mashiach. It's, 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 uh, that's, I mean, no, don't insult our intelligence. <laughs> we need the real thing. Tangible. Even a five-year-old child could see it. And when Hitler came, you didn't have to open your eyes to see that he came. Even with closed eyes. Today you have to open your eyes to see that we're living in very special times and it's imminent in any moment. When Hitler came, even with your eyes shut, you knew that he came. So Mashiach has to be at least like that. Surely it's going to be a thousand times more than that, 500 times more than that. But at least, even with closed eyes, when Mashiach actually comes, you'll know it. Even with your eyes shut. And that hasn't happened yet. And we're not going to settle for anything less. And we don't want to settle for anything less. And we, you know, that's not... We need Mashiach literally. And that's what the Rebbe says. He doesn't understand why it hasn't happened, why it hasn't materialized. Of all this Herculean effort, of all this heroic effort, talking about thousands of years of dedication, of sacrifice, of effort, thick and thin, fire and water. Our parents went through hell and back and kept the faith and kept the light going, kept the torch alive. And we still talk about Mashiach and talk about Hashem. And, talk about, and um, so, you know, we need all of this, all the blessings and all the promises to materialize literally. Maybe more to children. We had everything already. Yeah, you think that you, yeah, then, then there's no end to it. There's never enough. 
There's never enough truvan, there's never enough Torah, there's never enough mitzvot, and you, you can go on, you want to go on for another million years? I mean, God forbid. If, if you want to find excuses, if Hashem is looking for excuses, it's just an excuse. The Rabbi, the Rabbi said that uh, the uniform is all ready and the buttons are polished. And then he said if you polish the button too much, it's counterproductive. Mm. You, you start rubbing the button. It's, it's already, we've already polished too much already. How, 70 years of polishing. How many no. years could you polish? <laughs> polish and polish and polish and polish. Okay. It's, it's, you know, we, we run out of excuses. We run out of explanations. It's a mystery. The Rebbe says, I'm mystified. I have no idea. I have no explanation. I have no rationalization. I have no clue. It makes absolutely no sense. Because you have to look at it. Hashem looks at it with different eyes than we look at it. You have to look at, despite all the darkness and despite everything, look how much good, look how much Torah, look how many mitzvot, look how much sacrifice, look how much... After what the Jewish people went through, after a Holocaust, and, and still the Jewish people picked themselves up, and Yiddishkeit is flourishing in every corner of the world. Look how much tzedakah, look how much kindness, look how much goodness. And look, After all of this, I mean, I mean Hashem demanded 500% from us, and He got more than 100%. So... You know, you're talking to human beings. Hashem put us into this world. We're human beings with all the challenges. And despite all of that, look what the Jewish people have done. So that's the right way to look at it. Not, well, look at all the negativity. Look at all the bad. So hopefully, surely, next week, Dr. Rebbe himself will be giving the class. <laughs> and you won't have to hear, you won't have to hear me hacking Shainik anymore. And we'll have the real lessons in Tanya. <laughs> This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.